welcome everybody to this uh, STR uh, virtual symposium. Uh, it's entitled, Do We Need a New Theory of the International Firm? And we're looking forward to a very exciting debate. My name is Louisa Morse. I'm the program chair of STR. Um, and I am going to turn over to Ilgas Arikan, who's gonna uh, lead the debate and moderate the debate. And he will also introduce our panelists for this very exciting debate. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thank you very much, all of you. For thank you, Ilkan, for organizing, and all of you for joining this debate, and everyone for being here today. Thank you. So, hello. Uh, thank you all for coming. And my name is Ilkan Ilkan. I'm the organizer of this debate. Uh, Louis Moores uh, and Gwendolyn Lee will be managing the Zoom. I'm sure this will be an amazing debate. So let's go ahead and begin. Okay, uh, our motivation is given the nature of changes and challenges in political, social, economic contexts, ideologies, institutional dynamics, organizational forms, incentives, frictions, uh, conflicts, and stakeholders, do we need a new theory of the firm? And uh, one especially addressing the new international firm. And if yes, what would that theory look like? And how does that impact our research? The debaters today, we have four esteemed scholars, Jay Barney, Peter Buckley, David Thies, and Alain Verbeke. They have made so many contributions to the theory of the firm. Their citation count is close to half a million. And I don't think they need an introduction. And next I'll go into the debate format. So, we will follow a modified Oxbridge-style debate. The initial charge is, the motion is, there is no need for a new theory of the international firm. Peter Bhatti and Alain Verbeke will be arguing for the motion, and Jay Barney and David Thies will argue against the motion. The first round, uh, we'll have four rounds of debate. The positioning, crossfire, rebuttal, and the closing rounds. Each speaker will have five, four, three, and two minutes respectively. Uh, throughout the debate, the chat box will be active and it will be monitored by uh, Luis and Gwen and me as much as I can. Uh, at, at, at the end, we will have 20 minutes for questions from the audience. I would like to ask you to please keep your questions and comments short uh, when uh, the mic is on. Uh, so that we can accommodate as many people as possible. And I will start with a coin toss to determine which side goes first. This is the coin. And the fourth side is heads and against side is tails. Here we go. Uh, I don't think you can see it, but it is heads. So Peter and Alain, uh, who will go first in your team? Hey, me. I'm starting. Peter, perfect. Peter, so we'll have Peter go first and then someone from the against team and then we'll continue back and forth alternating the orders. Uh, first round. Uh, Peter, good luck. You've got five minutes. Thank you. Um, I take the view that all knowledge is provisional and theory in particular is set up to be disproven. Uh, when we wrote the future of the multinational enterprise, we deliberately set it up so that it could be uh, not proven or proven or disproven. Uh, 
I even wrote a piece in 1988 showing how it could be disproven. And my contention is that that theory has stood the test of time, despite it being subject to many uh, potential disproofs over 40 years. The theory was originally set up to explain the existence of the multinational enterprise and to predict the growth of the multinational enterprise. The multinational enterprises that then existed were Western, that's US, Japan and European. They were largely manufacturing. They were largely vertically and horizontally integrated. They were largely manufacturing and privately owned. More, many modern multinationals are none of these things. And one major test of the theory was the emergence of emerging market multinationals. Emerging market multinationals were none of the things that I've just listed. And we, uh, in a paper in Jibs in 2007, set out to try and explain Chinese multinationals using the theory. Chinese multinationals are largely state-owned, non-integrated, often non-manufacturing. And the theory survived that test. It was not disproven. It did extremely well. That paper got the Jibs Decade Award. It's also survived the challenge of people saying it cannot be used to explain small multinationals, resource-based multinationals, and now digital multinationals. Digitization and platform uh, multinationals provide some excellent tests for using comparative statics, what would have happened with them without digital digitization. But I would contend that these are best explained by changes in internalization decisions and location decisions. The theory is basically extremely simple. It can be explained in a couple of sentences. Firms grow by internalizing imperfect external markets up to the point at which the costs of further externalization, internalization are exceeded by uh, external market use. And that lease cost location applies to the activities of the firm. Two very general basic assumptions. Now, if you want to make that practical, you have to put restrictions on that. And so we have a number of special theories that emerge, the most celebrated of which is knowledge-based multinationals, multinationals in knowledge-based markets, knowledge-intensive multinationals. That is not the general case, that's a special case. We can also have special cases related to extractive firms, to agricultural firms where quality control is important, and so on. In terms of the dynamics, the dynamics are explained by the changing balance of internal and external market use and by changes in location costs across the world, which change all the time. So this is extremely dynamic. Firms are changing all the time. And the growth of the firm is explained by the internalization of the outputs of research and, de uh, research and development and its integration with other functions such as marketing and production as judged optimal by managers. And I have a paper called Do, Ma Do Managers Behave the Way Theory Suggests, co-authored with Tim Davini. And by and large, that, that, that works. So I would argue then that the, the, the dynamics are explained by internalization and location, by shifting input and output strategies, in other words, global value chains, 
have foreign market servicing strategies, and we need to look at governance to explain the modern network multinational. Final thing to say is that this is a general theory of the firm. Uninational firms are those firms that have not internalized markets across national boundaries and where location dictates uh, location at home. That's my five minutes, I think. Perfect. Uh, so Jay and David, who wants to go next? You want to go first, David? Hey, guys, perhaps you can stop the screen sharing so we can see the speakers on the on the big screen. You want to go next, David? You want me to go? You're 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 muted, David. You're muted. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I can uh, agree with Peter that theories are about distillation of uh, reality. Uh, theories are about simplification. Um, but what we have to do in building theories is abstract from reality in a way that is uh, relatively concise and meaningful and doesn't distort that reality. So any theory of the firm, any theory of international business is going to involve simplification, uh, but we have to simplify around the essence. Now, I would argue that the essence uh, of the enterprise and the essence of the global economy has changed significantly in the last 50 years. Uh, in particular, uh, efficiency is much more uh, efficiency, which was the driver of uh, the way we looked at the world uh, 50 years ago, uh, and it's still a driver to some extent, but it's been replaced by innovation. So any theory of the firm and any theory of international business that we have, I believe, needs to, uh, in fact, reflect the fact that, um, that uh, innovation is now uh, central. Now, the other thing that's different about the global economy uh, is that the nature of its governance has changed. Uh, George Schultz, before he passed away, the former Secretary of State, noted that we've created, we created a secure global economic commons, which is now coming apart. We being the United States and the Western world um, in the post-World War II era, era. So that system of governance that we... Uh, once familiar with, which relied importantly on the rule of law is going away. And in fact, just two days ago, Vladimir Putin in St. Petersburg noticed that new powerful centers have formed on the planet. We're talking about revolutionary changes in the entire system of international relationships. So the global economy is changing and it's changing in ways that I think require us to change our theories. Now, the basic theory of the firm uh, and of international business that uh, has uh, done well for the last 50 years, and uh, Peter Buckley, of course, and Mark Casson had a big role in that, um, is really around internalization ideas and transactions costs. And those theories were animated by efficiency considerations 
Um, but today we have to look at innovation as a key driver. And I believe that dynamic capabilities is one way in which one can bring innovation uh, center stage. So it's not so much about ownership, uh, location, and internalization, although that still matters. Uh, it's increasingly about uh, an entrepreneurial approach to building value and capturing value. And with dynamic capabilities, we often talk about sensing, seizing, and transforming as the essence of the type of activities which management must engage in in order to be successful. So uh, the old models still matter because there are corners of the economy where innovation is not so important. There are corners of the global economy where uh, the rule of law is still paramount. But uh, in many parts of the world, that's no longer true. And because it's no longer true, uncertainty is now the, the key parameter that we must look at and understand as we try to think about the global economy and the environment in which firms operate. So with uncertainty, there's less predictability in the business environment uh, and businesses and managers therefore need to be agile, but it's not just about being agile, it's about being entrepreneurial. And it's also about being strategic. You can have all the agility in the world, but if you're not strategic in the sense of prioritizing opportunities uh, and moving quickly to engage them and building long-term competitive advantage, you're not gonna get very far. So let's also take some other concepts from international business. Um, uh, let's take the concept of firm-specific advantages and country-specific advantages. These, of course, are still relevant concepts, but uh, Peter mentioned China. And it's very hard, I think, to cleave a line between country-specific advantages and firm-specific advantages when you have uh, publicly-owned enterprises or even in, those, even in those situations where the uh, enterprise is not publicly owned, but it's private, uh, if it's really tethered quite closely to the purposes of the state, then we have a very different situation. And China, of course, is now uh, a very large player in the global economy, so we can no longer uh, sweep that away and say, well, that's just a minor exception. It no longer is. So we need a holistic approach. We need a framework that uh, can integrate all these disparate ideas. And um, I'm not sure that the, uh, the, the approaches of the past really do that very well, but I do think, and I offer dynamic capabilities as a framework, not so much a theory, but a framework by which you can take into account uh, ordinary capabilities, uh, the efficiency criteria that has animated a lot of the theories of the firm in the past. Uh, but it also allows you to look hard and to understand the role of uh, entrepreneurship, of entrepreneurial management, and of innovation. So I'll just leave it there and uh, suggest that there is always the need to revise theories when the business environment changes and when the very nature of the firm changes. Remember Ronald Coase's initial paper on the nature of the firm um, was very clear that uh, the way you start thinking about firms is to look at their nature and distill from it. 
And uh, I do believe firms have changed. The business environment has changed, particularly on a global basis. The rule of law, sadly, in my view, is now in the backseat. It's the, the future is about the rule of rulers and very strong autocracies that are setting a different set of uh, parameters within which, we're, within which firms have to operate. And that means the descriptive theory of the firm must change as well as the normative principles we derive from it. Perfect, thank you. Alan, you got five minutes. Yes, uh, thank you, <clears throat> Ilgas, for uh, organizing this panel and for inviting me. It's a pleasure to exchange a few thoughts on the rapidly evolving nature of the internationally operating firm and on the implications uh, thereof for international business uh, strategy and for theorizing on that strategy. Let me perhaps start by making two simple points. I think first, uh, most strategy is now, in a real sense, international business strategy. And the COVID crisis uh, has certainly highlighted uh, how many inputs and outputs come from distant places, even for firms that are supposedly uh, local or domestic. Uh, bizarrely, almost nobody uses the term international business strategy. Uh, not strategy scholars and not mainstream international business or management scholars. Now, why does this matter to theory? Well, if you accept that all strategy is international uh, business strategy, it becomes important to understand the most complex organizational form in this setting, and that is the evolving multinational enterprise. So any good theory of the multinational enterprise and its international business strategy by definition, in my view at least, uh, needs to include analysis of four elements. First, um, there is place, then there is space, then there is organization, and then there is time. So place refers to location advantages or disadvantages, both at home and abroad. Space essentially refers to entrepreneurial resource orchestration as firms address the various dimensions of distance when, cross when crossing borders, and that includes yeah, kind of barriers set up by um, autocratic regimes. Then organization refers to the firm's reservoir of resources and capabilities that are deployable across geographic space and require efficient governance. And finally, time is um, critical because redeploying resources, adjusting governance, and also learning from success and failure occurs over time in a non-trivial way. And this brings me to uh, my substantive point, I mentioned place, space, organization, and time. Uh, one could also simply say that a good theory of international business strategy must be able to accommodate the importance of context. But one of the unfortunate externalities of us recognizing the importance of context is that there are now many scholars who think that we need to indigenize theories. It is the same foolishness that we have observed for some decades now, and that Peter was uh, referring to, about the alleged need for a new theory for the strategies of emerging economy MEs, or a special uh, theory for the strategies of international new ventures, supposedly different from a general theory of international business strategy. These are flawed views. A good theory, at least when properly understood, should be sufficiently powerful in explanatory and predictive terms to address or accommodate a variety of contexts, clearly subject to fine-tuning. As one example, I published a paper with uh, Thomas Hutchenreuter in AMP on digital globalization, simply applying mainstream international business strategy theory. And it allowed a bounds view as to when to expect success or failure in the global marketplace. 
in sharp contrast to supposedly new theory, yeah, that is about innovation and about rapid globalization of digital companies with light asset footprints abroad. I mean, this is completely wrong. As another example, the theory of the multinational enterprise has in the past focused on the relative benefits and costs of ownership with indeed a focus on internalization strategies, as David hinted uh, at. But the theory has easily evolved to accommodate the increased importance of control as compared to ownership. So Peter calls that a global factory. And, and now the theory is evolving further to accommodate the challenges of access to decision rights more broadly, especially when non-market stakeholders like autocratic regime or capricious non-market groups attempt to deny such access to the firm. My second point, and this is directed uh, towards Jay and David, is that we need to make a distinction between theories that are wonderful toolboxes and that we teach in any strategy course versus what constitutes a general theory of firm strategy. So some of the key toolboxes that we all teach our students include, yeah, the forces driving industry competition, the importance of VRIN or VRIO resources, the need for access to complementary resources uh, to profit from innovation, and then the need for dynamic capabilities to achieve ecological fit. But these toolboxes are wonderful, but are only inputs for a more general theory. In a general theory of international business strategy, I think that, for instance, the resource-based view is very useful, not because it explains superior performance, except for after the fact, but because it allows untangling the characteristics of resources that firms utilize. The dynamic capabilities perspective is also very useful, but again, not because it explains superior performance, except for after the fact, but because there's a toolbox for looking at these three distinct and interrelated processes that have to do with resource orchestration. So this is what I've tried to explain in my editorial in the last issue of GIPS on how to use dynamic capabilities thinking in the analysis of international business strategy. So both the resource-based view and the dynamic capabilities approach support the more general theory of international business strategy, but they cannot operate in isolation of the dimensions of place, space, the governance aspect of organization, and time. And in addition, um, and I'm almost finished, two elements are part and parcel of any general theory of international business strategy. First, the theory must have a plausible view of human nature. In my own work, this is about challenges of bounded rationality. Yes, to deal with that increased uncertainty. And then there is also the issue of reliability, both inside the firm and from outside partners or actors with whom one transacts. Second, uh, it is the acknowledgement that whatever the firm's business model and value proposition, efficiency goals are important. Orchestrating resources, innovating, developing dynamic capabilities all come with a cost. These are not free goods. And the mainstream theory of international business strategy accommodates these elements perfectly. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Jay, you've got five minutes. Good luck. Well, thanks, so guys. Thanks for everyone who's involved. I surely appreciate that. Can you hear me okay? I surely appreciate the, the work that has been done in this area on international theory of the firm. Um, and I also appreciate the summaries that Peter did, uh, has given us on that theory. I would make the following observations that 
we'll start with the observation that uh, he really emphasizes the importance of internalization. In fact, uh, there are the, the theory of internalization is the central feature of the currently dominant theories of the firm. Those there, there are lots of ways of characterizing those different theories, but one way is that there are three of them: transaction cost economics, incomplete contract theory, and agency theory. The way these theories are developed is they each hypothesize or identify a particular problem, a particular exchange problem that exists in the economy, and then try to show how a firm solves that particular problem. For example, transaction cost economics says the problem is the threat of opportunism caused by transaction-specific investment, and then argues that that problem is solved through hierarchical governance and manual fiat. Incomplete contract theory, the second of the three, uh, the problem is that some decision rights are not contractable ex ante. And so this problem is solved in that theory by assigning residual rights of control to the party to exchange that has the most gained from that exchange. And the agency theory, the third theory of, uh, theory of the firm that's dominating the conversation these days. The problem is that sometimes managers act in ways that are inconsistent with the interests of shareholders, and this problem is solved in the theory through the set of monitoring and bonding mechanisms that constitute what we call um, corporate governance. Uh, these theories work very well and thus can be applied in a national context when there's a clear distinction between markets and hierarchies and managers can exercise manual fiat within uh, those hierarchies. It's possible to identify, and they work well, but it's possible to identify who in exchange has the most to gain and when it turns only critical stakeholders is, is shareholders. And of course, as in order to be acknowledged, these theories still are widely applicable in many settings, there's those three assumptions hold. However, in a modern global economy, as Alan was describing, um, these conditions often don't hold. So for example, um, more and more, there's not a clear distinction between markets and hierarchies as alternative governance mechanisms in the face of network organizations ecosystems that create economic value and platforms as sources of economic value. For many years, Professor Williamson argued strongly that so-called intermediate forms of governance were temporary disequilibrium phenomena. This is clearly not the case in 2022. And so the distinction between markets and hierarchies seems to be broken, breaking down. Management fiat in the modern global economy is deeply limited by practice and by law and does not fully resolve the problem of opportunism, certainly employees still are reluctant sometimes to engage in firm specific investments because of the threat of opportunism, even though they are formally inside the boundaries of the firm. Uh, Include contract theory, uh, again, very powerful set of ideas, but in a world of global competition, it's often very difficult to know who in an exchange has the most to gain from that exchange, and thus very difficult to know who uh, should have residual rights of control. Moreover, in rapidly changing technology regimes and environments, who has the most to gain from exchange can, share, can change dramatically. Finally, with regard to agency theories approach to internalization, um, agency theories based strongly on the notion of shareholder supremacy. The political reality across the world of shareholder uh, supremacy is coming to be seen as immoral in many uh, countries and it's beginning to be reflected in legal changes in some countries. And the economic reality is that the deal that is offered to the stakeholders who make firm-specific investments in a firm uh, in shareholder supremacy is quite strange. It sort of goes like this. 
Um, I want you, stakeholder, to make highly specific investments in this company. I want your loyalty, your dedication, your hard work, your creativity, your team production. From all those activities, we will generate high levels of profitability, which I will then give to my shareholders. Well, no reasonable stakeholders likely to engage in these things. So while these theories are, have been very powerful and very interesting uh, as theories of internalization, upon which I think the international um, series of the firm, uh, sorry, series of the international firm had built, uh, I am uh, increasingly convinced that these fundamental theories of internalization are bumping into the reality of ecosystems, platforms, global competition, uncertainty with regard who, uh, who the most valuable uh, sources of value in an exchange are, and of course, uh, that we no longer brought acceptance of shareholder supremacy as, as the path forward. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, second round, crossfire. Peter, let's uh, continue with you. Four minutes. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to, I thought that was really interesting. I'd just like to make two, uh, two points. The first one is that um, in internalization theory and the modern theory of the multinational firm allows you to look at the global, global economy as a system. And I think David was absolutely right when he, he, the problem or the beauty of international business is that it is a multi-level thing. We're not just talking about the level of the firm, we're talking about the level of the global economy. And as Jay said, within the firm as well. So we've got all these different levels to take account of. And I think it's very interesting that almost immediately David went to the level above the firm. He went to the global system. And this is a wonderful way of looking at it. I mean, we, we cannot just, all the comments we've had so far suggest that you cannot just look at the firm. You've got to look at the firm in its context. And you've got to look at the firm as part of a system. And that is a global system. And David alluded very strongly to the idea of the fracture in the global system, that firms cannot assume that the global system is a single unified system. I agree entirely with that. It's going to make a lot of difference to the way firms build their strategy. It's going to make, a, and how would I analyze that? I would look at what, it, what difference that makes to internalization what difference that makes to location because they have to change location because of this fracture. And, and I would look at the nature and number of firms and where they're located, the global system. And in a sense, that is part of the beauty of the, the theory of the international firm, that it is not just the theory of the firm, it places it within context. The point about uh, that both uh, speakers, all speakers have made, about, about the uh, multinational firm is it's changing. Al talked about my approach to the global factory, which looks at mixed modes. It looks at not just ownership and externalization, it looks at mixed modes and have this concept of orchestrating these different elements across the global economy. So I think the point, the, the, the point is that if you have theoretical principles, yes, they have to be adapted as the real world changes. But my argument is that those principles still hold good. The points that were made were excellent. I mean, they were, they were all very difficult to, they were all solid, reasonable points. But I don't think 
that they show that you have to throw away the current theory of the firm and replace it with something completely different. It needs to be modified. It has been modified. It will continue to be modified under the challenges. And I think the shareholder versus stakeholder thing is really important. And perhaps I'll, I'll come back to that later because problem at times up. Perfect. Uh, David. Yes. Well, I, I think there's a lot of agreement, uh, but at the same time, I think the audience is likely to be confused. If everything's relevant, then nothing's relevant. Uh, let me suggest a useful way for thinking about what we're talking about. And I refer you to the Nobel address of Eleanor Ostrom. She made a distinction between frameworks, theories, and models. And uh, what uh, Peter just said uh, is relevant at the level of frameworks. And uh, we need an organizing framework to pull all of this uh, clutter of models and theories together in some kind of coherent way. And I'm putting forward dynamic capabilities as an, such an organizing framework. And, and at the same time, I think OLI, uh, John Dunning's OLI, is, is really a framework. It's not so much a theory. Underneath frameworks, you have theories, and that's where the resource-based view fits in. Transactions, cost economics, internalizations fits in under theories. And then you have models, uh, which fit in underneath that. And profiting from innovation, for instance, is a predictive model of when the pioneer is going to win in the market and when they're going to lose. So I think it's really important to keep this tripartite system in mind. Sometimes we're talking about theories, sometimes we're talking about frameworks, sometimes we're talking about models, but we need to be clear what we're talking about because they are somewhat nested inside of each other, or at least they can be nested. And the skill of the good uh, scholar and the good theorist is to figure out how this patchwork uh, fits in. Some of it doesn't fit in anymore and we should discard it. Those bits that fit in and that can continue to inform what we uh, see and, and help our understanding, we keep those uh, in, the, in, in focus. So, so I, I think there's actually a high degree of convergence here in what we're saying. But that convergence will be lost in confusion unless we're careful and unless we keep in mind whether we're talking about theories, models, or frameworks. Thank you. Uh, Alain. Uh, thank you. Yes, allow me to make uh, three quick points. Uh, first, um, David talks about the dynamic capabilities as kind of, you know, the more general, I don't know, it was a theory of a framework, but uh, in my view, it is really a kind of um, important support element of the theory of international business strategy. So even when taking David's own example about how, you know, an autocratic regime uh, prevents firms with supposedly dynamic capabilities from entering the markets and there's all, there's all these evil things. Uh, that means that dynamic capabilities are neither dynamic uh, nor are they capabilities uh, in that particular market. So what does the firm need to do? Well, the firm needs to change its strategy 
an internalization theory, of course, has accommodated this from the outset, right? So what is the entry mode? Uh, what is the location? And what is the governance structure that you will, um, that you will use? So I think that, um, again, the dynamic capabilities approach is very useful, but um, everything that uh, David has said um, supports me in my thinking that it's indeed a useful uh, toolbox within this more uh, general approach to look at uh, international business strategy. Then Jay mentions these um, mainstream theories, which we all know. There is Williamsonian PCE, contract theory, there is um, agency theory, and then of course there is the theory that most uh, scholars nowadays in business schools seem to use, which is institutional theory. And I think that actually uh, the modern theory of the multinational firm accommodates all these particular elements, right? Because institutions are relevant because they affect location advantages and disadvantages. Uh, agency uh, theory and the Williamsonian perspective are also interesting because they deal with uh, reliability issues. Um, primarily of um, actors inside the firm. But of course, reliability issues also exist um, outside of the, um, of the company and outside of the, the market transactions uh, at the micro level. But the, uh, problems of reliability also exist at the macro level. Uh, as David says, you know, these are the rule of um, rulers uh, regimes. But even if you're not in a rule of rulers regime, I mean, if you are Huawei, uh, yes, you understand that now you have lost your decision rights. You have subsidiaries in a variety of countries and they can now not participate in the market because the non-market stakeholders are saying that you're a danger uh, to uh, national uh, security. And then my third and last point uh, relates to what um, Jay said about platforms and ecosystems. We had a debate about this in GIPS. And I think uh, Jean-Francois Nard made the very important point that platforms and ecosystems are ultimately always uh, controlled by a lead firm or by a number of firms. So this idea that this is something that uh, operates within markets and hierarchies is actually completely wrong. Even a joint venture is basically a firm, you know, and sure it has uh, shareholders from at least two other companies, but it is a firm. Uh, strategic alliances are also dominated by the partners that are firms. And so my main point here is that all these other theories have units of analysis that are not the firm. And I think that that is a big mistake related to all these theories. Uh, in business, we should always start from the entrepreneur who has set up a firm. And so that ultimately then culminates in that most complex form or that most sophisticated form, the multinational enterprise. And I think we have to start from there. I think that any other theory is almost by definition flawed because it doesn't start from the correct unit of analysis. Thank you. Thanks. Jay, four minutes. Thank you. Mm. If, if we start with the idea that our current theories of internalization may not work well in a global, the new global competitive context that we all have been describing, um, and then, then it becomes important for us to think about, well, what would be an alternative, or at least a complementary theory of internalization in this context? Uh, as a person whose uh, roots are much more in strategy than international business, it strikes me that one of the things most interesting about our current theories is that none of them 
imagine that one of the primary reasons that firms exist is to create and appropriate economic value. Um, all the other theories talk about preserving economic value that already exists rather than actually creating that economic value. It speaks to the material uh, comments that Alan was just making. Uh, so when I think about uh, what a new theory of internalization that might work in a global, this new global context might look like, I think uh, a theory where value creation occurs among co-specialized economic agents who are voluntarily engaging in food production. Some of those agents may be firms, some of those agents may be individuals. We can talk about that later on. Um, in this world, uh, identifying firm boundaries is per se is less important uh, for this theory because firm boundaries are deeply permeable and changing constantly. Value creation occurs under conditions of Nike uncertainty, something David has written about. The advantage of having this, there's a trade off between having the, the advantage of having a clear allocation of business rights against the advantages of being flexible and being able to change the existing rights have to be allocated. And then finally, these economic actors that sort of get involved in this nexus of relationships that, that generate economic value, the important uh, parties in that, uh, that nexus are not just shareholders and managers, but in fact, are including any stakeholder that is part of the profit generating process associated with being in the firm. Uh, and so um, that's what I look towards when I sort of think about what a, this broader, uh, uh, this uh, slightly different theory of uh, internalization uh, of exchanges would look like in an international context. One quick comment. Um, I have a sense that this emphasis on the, um, uh, the current theory of the international business firm, uh, the multinational uh, business firm, um, as, a, as, a, as a toolbox is interesting because um, there's the box in which you keep the tools and then there are the tools. And I would make the argument that the box without the tools is just an empty box. And that the tools actually are what you use to actually make these interventions. One final point real quickly. Um, Alan uh, criticized both resource-based theory and uh, dynamic capabilities theory with regard to only explaining performance ex post, not ex ante. Sounds like he would like us to come up with an algorithm for generating economic value, which of course violates the rules for riches uh, paradox constraint. Uh, it is the case that uh, neither my theory or David's theory, I think, make the, uh, make the assertion that if you just apply our theory, you'll become wealthy. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't important practical and implications for everything. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, round three rebuttals. Uh, we'll start with Peter. Yeah, I, I find it very interesting about frameworks and theories and so on. I, I think the way I think about this is that there are theoretical principles. Uh, and you apply those theoretical principles, their general principles, and you apply them, uh, they're general, and you put restrictions on them to provide your predictions. And what, what we've heard is that there are new factors in the world economy or growing factors in the world economy, things like the fracture, things, things like governance changes, things like shareholders versus stakeholders. 
And I don't see any of these being incompatible with the theoretical principles. Indeed, I think the way forward is to apply the given and general theoretical principles to these changes in the world economy. So you accept changes in context and you apply unchanging principles to them. And that's the way I would see going forward. I think we are in a most exciting time for the development of theory in international uh, business, because not only have we got the factors that we've already talked about, we've got what is the role of multinationals with grand challenges? What is the role of multinationals for, for the uh, sustainable development goals? How are global value chains going to change? You've got a massive number of issues. And as David says, unless we are consistent, we're going to end up with a mishmash. My way of being consistent is to suggest that there are relatively unchanging, let me put it no stronger than that, theoretical principles that you apply to changing conditions of the world. Now, what managers need to understand to make decisions from that, to to my mind, partly comes from those theoretical principles, partly comes from an understanding of the context that they face and predictive views of how that will change in the future. So managers have got a really tough ask. And my suggestion is that adherence to some theoretical principles about what has worked in the past, then entry strategy, these kind of things, can only help in the more difficult VUCA world that we all face. Thank you. Uh, David? Yes, uh, these are all very good points. And um, I think we have to recognize that not only has context changed, but also the social sciences have changed, and in particular, economics has changed uh, or is changing in part because of work done in the field of strategic management. And, and that also uh, provides not just the need to change, but the opportunity to change our theories and models, not necessarily to toss them away, but to renovate them. And I think Jay Barney just gave an excellent uh, example of vignette in that regard. Let's take internalization. You know, when Peter was writing his book with Mark Casson. Uh, he was drawing heavily from a sort of a Kosian transactions cost view of internalization. Uh, but internalization is driven not just by contractual issues, uh, it's also driven very much by capabilities. And uh, Jay Barney pointed out that, listen, uh, the, the internalization is driven by the value creation process and the value capture process and the business models that you use to both create and capture value. And I think internalization or thinking about the boundaries of the firm is deeply enriched if you can combine it with new thinking on capabilities, new thinking on business models and so forth. So, uh, so I see some, um, some, some convergence here, at least the opportunity for convergence by thinking about how do we improve upon our existing theories and models, but then also how we pull them together in the light of the fact that one globalization is not necessarily reversing, but it's stalled and it's changing its nature because the rules of the game are changing because strong autocracies 
don't believe in the rule of law, they are pushing a very different approach. Uh, and by rule of law, I, I mean the fact that you have, you know, uh, independent judiciaries, uh, you have rights of appeal, uh, you have the apparatus uh, that uh, the global system uh, was uh, building quite successfully until quite recently. So, um, so I, I think uh, I think there's still a need, though, to to keep Eleanor Ostrom's uh, taxonomy in in mind. Otherwise, there'll be a lot of cross-talking and uh, and uh, a lack of convergence and mutual understanding amongst the various components uh, that constitute the, the the broad literatures that we're all familiar with. Perfect, thank you. Uh, Alain. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just a few quick points. So Jay says that um, basically a good theory uh, should be about creating economic value. Uh, well, I agree with you. That uh, is exactly what internalization theory does. And uh, it may have escaped many people um, when thinking about Williamsonian transaction cost economics. But when you read it carefully, it is actually about contracting in its entirety but with an underlying value proposition. So in other words, uh, both TCE and internalization theory have always been about uh, creating economic value as the ultimate goals, but looking at disturbances and hindrances to um, uh, this economic value creation and on how to mitigate these disturbances and hindrances. Uh, so I think we all agree on that, but I think it's important uh, to say that to the audience because uh, many junior scholars and, uh, um, you know, just graduated PhD students uh, kind of, um, you know, they seem to, um, to miss this uh, very simple point. They think that TCE is only about transaction costs and they think that internalization theory is about only internalization of activities, whereas, of course, it's about making these judicious choices uh, as to what uh, operating mode is the most efficient. Uh, second point related to that is that internalization theory is, of course, much more than an empty box, precisely because it is the only theory that really addresses uh, appropriately place, space, organization, and time, and none of these other theories do that. The third point is about the nature of human beings. No one has spoken about that. Jay has briefly mentioned, yeah, kind of opportunism and then agency. But of course, um, the, the reality is, I mean, that on the one hand, we all agree that problems of information are critical. So there is, of course, always bounded rationality that needs to be overcome. Uh, and the more general point, I think, is that um, the other behavior condition that we need to have is a condition that has to do with you know, degrees of reliability, whereas opportunism is, I think, a special uh, case uh, that is very situationally determined. And my fourth point, and that is uh, really important, um, I completely agree with David about this need for convergence. Uh, but let me tell you this, a few years ago, I published a paper in a minor journal with uh, Tom Kenworthy, where we looked at uh, the uh, 30 years of publications in SMJ and a few other uh, mainstream journals in strategy. And we came to the conclusion that uh, 194 theories, yes, you heard that right, 194 theories had been deployed in these journals. 
And so what that suggests is that there is an enormous amount of theory importing going on. And I also see that uh, as editor-in-chief of GIPS, how basically scholars are continuously trying to import new concepts from other theories. And basically in that um, kind of paper, looking at these uh, 30 years of strategy research, we cautioned against that. So in other words, if we want convergence, uh, we need to agree at least on a number of basic concepts that when taken together have some predictive capacity. And we really have to stop importing um, concepts from other disciplines that in fact already exists in some form in mainstream international business strategy. And again, kind of, um, I have the fullest respect for economics, sociology, psychology, etc. Uh, but when people introduce concepts that actually don't do a job that is as good as concepts that we already have in international business strategy, that truly contribute virtually nothing to explanatory power and actually mainly increase confusion rather than kind of shed light on a phenomenon, uh, I say no. Thank you. Thank you, Alain. Uh... Last speaker on the third round, Jay. Thank you. Um, obviously, great conversation. Uh, let me start by disagreeing with Alan's characterization of um, Williamsonian transaction costs. Uh, I, I, first of all, I, I have enormous respect for Williamsonian transaction costs. It's a very useful theory in lots of settings. But Williamson, Ollie was very clear in his language that he takes the, the gains from trade and exchanges given and then asks the question, What's the right way to organize? So uh, organize that that transaction. So in this sense, um, the gains from trade, how is value created, is exogenous to the transaction cost issue. And that's um, that's not a criticism. It's a very reasonable approach to developing this theory of internalization. But uh, it's very difficult. It's possible to stretch and bend transaction costs to try to include traditional transaction costs to try to include value creation and capture, but it 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 it, it takes some uh, theoretical flexibility to put that conceptual flexibility. Um, I, I just wanted to I was going to go back to Peter's comments about the need for um, what are our underlying assumptions in, in the in the world of, of um, the global enterprise. And and I think that um, that uh, those assumptions have been implicitly at least four that seem to me to be uh, facing difficulty right now. First is that uh, we had this notion that all the all we had to do, all firms had to worry about was finding the lowest cost, highest quality place to, op to operate globally, and that that would be uh, sufficient. Well, what we've seen is the politics of that decision-making algorithm are quite problematic. Uh, we know that globalization displaces workers, and this, this displacement is actually very difficult to fix with retraining the uh, go-to solution to all these things. And this has huge implications for the things that David was talking about, about the commons breaking down. I mean, the rise of populist movements in the United States, the UK, and elsewhere uh, is generally led by, populated by people who are economically disenfranchised because our theories assumed that all firms had to do was be efficient in allocating those things. Uh, it turns out that our global supply chains are much more fragile than the theory seemed to sort of allow 
Uh, we see this starting with the tsunami the, and pandemic, and of course, trade sanctions, and, uh, and of course, the, the war you, you can't Ukraine just uh, makes that point even more dramatically. A third assumption has been that the task of the firm is maximizing returns to its shareholders slash stakeholders, depending on your perspective. And what David has pointed out, and I think rightly so, is that that simple idea is, that has dominated the theory of the international firm for uh, decades uh, doesn't hold as much any longer. And this is not just a Chinese effect where clearly the interests of the firm and the interests of the government are deeply intertwined. But if we learn anything from the West's response to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that firm strategies globally are now deeply connected with the, um, the foreign policy of countries. And so that, that, that we, we need to bring the state back into our theories more completely. And then finally, um, uh, much of the hope in international business has always been that uh, international trade and economic engagement will reduce the, the probability or the chance for uh, international conflict. And sadly, tragically, we have found that that's not good. Perfect. Thank you. Last round, two minutes each. We'll start with Peter again. Thank you. There is no question that international business faces a massive number of challenges. It always has done and it continues to do. And these are great. These are huge. Uh, I see plenty of evidence of firms adapting to this. The adaption needs to be much quicker. The role of uh, the left behind, if I could call it that, as I've written about this, globalization is now itself a challenged, a challenged concept. Lots of people feel they have lost out for it and multinational firms are going to have to adapt to that just as they're going to have to adapt to the challenge. I remain unconvinced that I've been told that there's anything here that international, the international firm does not, cannot deal with. Um, I think, I'm not sure what it's meant to have uh, where it's failed to explain things in terms of real-world challenges. Uh, yes, there are huge changes in, in the firm. There always have been. If you go back 40 years, things have changed dramatically. But, but I'm not sure that the theory has really let us down in terms of being able to predict or cope with these issues. And I, that, an alternative theory, let's remember, would have to do better. Thank you. Uh, David? Yes, well, uh, let me just dwell for a moment on the remark that Alan Verbecke made, which is that uh, in a recent survey, he found 194 different theories of international business in the firm. Uh, look, we're all being very nice to each other here and saying uh, everything is still relevant. I think we have to put some filters up. Um, because there's a lot of literature that, quite frankly, is rubbish. And uh, I think it's time for uh, journal editors to, to be a little bit more discriminating. Uh, and for scholars to stop sort of uh, generating new theories, but think a little bit about how existing theories work together. 
uh, for instance, I'm writing a book on dynamic capabilities and related paradigms because I realize there's a lot of similarities between the frameworks that I've developed and what Charles O'Reilly and others have developed on agility and work on the lean startup by Eric Ries and others. All of these theories bear a lot more in common. As scholars, we tend to be pointing out the differences uh, and, and, and not really uh, searching hard enough to find those common threads that tie things together. So as we go forward, uh, and this is uh, both directed at scholars, but also particularly at journal editors, uh, I, th I think you have to ask the following questions. Uh, are these theories and these papers primarily about efficiency or are they primarily about innovation? Are they about efficiency and stable rule of law systems with no uh, deep uncertainty? Or is it about innovation where governance is fraying at the edges uh, and where um, there's deep uncertainty? I, I, I think we should favor frameworks that... Uh, uh, pay attention to deep uncertainty, that pay attention to innovation, that pay attention to the increasing power of states, not the declining power of states. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, if you go back to Raymond Ver Vernon's sovereignty at bay, which was sort of a part of the organizing framework behind international business because the power of the multinational firm or the importance of the multinational firm seem to be rising in the power of the and importance of the national the nation state declining what we see now is exactly the reverse uh sovereignty it's not at bay uh the international firm is very much at bay and the efficiency calculus is very much at bay so let's start being a little bit more self-critical and let the journal editors do their business by imposing some filters to weed out the rubbish we don't need 194 theories. Maybe we need, you know, 15 to 20 theories, and we need scholars that can judiciously select amongst these approaches, preserve, as Peter Buckley and, and Alan Verbecki pointed out, the elements of prior frameworks that are relevant, but also latch on to the, the new theories uh, and the new approaches when they have uh, significant purchase and when they look like they're a, a better distillation of the new reality. Beautiful, thank you. And Alain, two minutes. Thank you. Um, I agree with uh, all uh, people on the panel that we do need to focus on analysis of emerging organizational forms and on the strategies adopted by the companies running these new forms. Uh, but we always do need to remember that everything has a cost. Resiliency has a cost. Uh, strategic flexibility has a cost. Uh, deploying multiple business models has a cost. Investing in an international ecosystem populated by non-employees has a cost. Addressing grand challenges can potentially be extraordinarily costly, as uh, uh, the large energy firms are experiencing today. Uh, dealing with the state, of course, is um, sometimes extraordinarily expensive. So, um, and globalization, we talk, always talk about the global economic system, but the globalization is extraordinarily costly, which, uh, of course, um, is demonstrated by the fact that we still have very few, if any, uh, real global firms. So, I think that uh, the challenge for us as a research community is to avoid conceptual frameworks that ultimately have no predictive capacity because we ignore the costs of some strategy choices that we view as desirable. 
I think that faulty prescription serves really no purpose, except perhaps to publish an article in a referee journal. And on the issue of concepts that are attractive on the surface, um, you know, David calls this rubbish, and I agree. The late Oliver Williamson noted that the world of commerce is reorganized in favor of the cynics and against the innocents when social scientists like ourselves start using opaque language that is not descriptively accurate uh, because only, as in his words, the innocents are taken in. So I think that many very smart people, including uh, my colleagues on this panel and some of the attendees uh, of this session, whose work I know well, have developed powerful concepts for strategy in general and for international business strategy uh, in particular over the past decades. And I think that we should not dismiss this too easily when looking at emerging organizational forms and then the strategies associated with those. I should mention that there will be two editorials um, in GIPS in the last issues of 2022, one with Jean-Francois Hénard on the enduring value of uh, Williamson's theoretical work for international business strategy, including value creation, and then another one with Grazia Santangelo uh, with practical guidelines, um, especially directed towards junior authors who want to publish credible work extending theory. As one last uh, point, I'm co-organizing the 2023 um, SMS conference in Toronto next year. And the main conference theme is the need to integrate uh, mainstream thinking about strategy, governance, and resource allocation. And I do hope that all my colleagues on this panel uh, will be present. And I would like to invite them to start thinking about how their uh, respective theories can help address some of the grand strategy challenges of tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, finally, Jay. Uh, it's been a great uh, privilege to be associated with this uh, group of panelists, obviously, all of whom are extremely well known. Um, I, I would I would just um, make the final, uh, final observation with regard to the uh, whether or not we need a new theory of the international firm or not. Um, uh, one thing I learned early on in my um, development of my own theoretical work was that a theory that explains everything explains nothing. That is, for a theory to actually uh, be useful, it, it has to be boundary conditions specified that explain what the theory does do and what it doesn't do. So, for example, in my own work, as Alan has observed, um, I, I do not think any theory of strategy can tell a firm or managers in a firm how to ge generate uh, superior economic profits. But what it can do is it can say, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you that this probably won't work, that this probably won't work, and that this probably won't work. There is still prescription and interpretation for that. So when I hear that, um, that uh, Peter and, and Ellen are still uh, convinced that this broad organizing framework still incorporates all the differences that we uh, that we like that they and they agree exist. Um, I, I worry that um, it, it might be that, that the framework, in fact, is so broad and encompassing that it explains everything and therefore doesn't explain really anything. And that's that would be my only concern. With that said, obviously, I've learned a lot from what they've done, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Beautiful. Now, uh, I open the floor for audience questions and comments. I've seen a uh, couple of comments from 
Sumit Kundu, Christos uh, Piteles, Steve Tolman. Um, and uh, if you like, we can go ahead and start with uh, uh, comments from, uh, from the audience. Yes, Ilias, maybe we should go by the the chat. I see that Chris Pedalis had a, a question. Maybe you want to unmute Chris and ask your question. Well, the first question is not a question, really. It's basically just a, a clarification. I mean, by efficiency, we either have static allocative or productive efficiency, and we have intertemporal efficiency. And Intertemporal efficiency is basically always believed to be a, the main determinant of intertemporal efficiency to be innovation. So all I'm suggesting here to, to David, which I'm sure he will not disagree, is that basically when he refers to the distinction between efficiency versus innovation, this is what he really means is static efficiency versus intertemporal efficiency through innovation. And I take it the answer will be yes, but I thought I should just clarify potentially because I'm a bit pedantic, that's all. <laughs> David, say yes. Uh, yes, although I, I do think that when you're talking about innovation, uh, we should perhaps use the word if efficacy because efficiency brings out a lot of sort of static notions that are hard to escape from. So I absolutely agree conceptually with what you're saying. Uh, it's about, in some sense, efficiency over time. But if it's over time it, 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 and if it's innovation, it, it, you know, it, it, it is uh, not necessarily about using things more, uh, more parsimoniously, but about creating completely new forms of organization, new, new products, new services. So I agree, uh, but at the same time suggests that we ought to use different language rather than efficiency, because innovation is not about efficiency. Innovation and efficiency in the short term are usually at war with each other. Thank you, David. Should I ask my question to Peter or we move to somebody else? Please go ahead and ask. Okay. No, I, 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 I take your point. I mean, I take the point that I think one of the uh, long-running uh, criticisms of, of internalization theory is that it's static. But I, I, I think that's very hard to bear when you look at the role of R&D in the, in the explanation and investment in R&D and the returns from R&D and the risk from R&D. So maybe you could argue that is an extension or maybe you could argue that, uh, as you said, the notion of efficiency has to be broadened. But, but, but that is an area that perhaps the points have not been as well made as perhaps they should be. If I may just uh, add uh, one point to this. Um, so efficiency is indeed a tricky notion. And I think uh, there is more at play than just the issue of intertemporal efficiency. You know, I've struggled for the past uh, 30 years, I think, with coming to grips with this idea of legitimacy from institutional theory. 
and my view in the past, uh, which I now realize was wrong, was that um, when a manager gets up in the morning or the owner of a company, that person is not thinking, how can I become more legitimate? The person gets up in the morning and thinks, how am I going to create value? How am I going to innovate? Uh, how am I going to make a profit? But I think that um, I've come to realize, uh, especially in the context of grand challenges, that um, legitimacy, uh, and when you think, for example, about uh, ESGD indicators, which ultimately are a reflection of uh, firms trying to be perceived as more legitimate, uh, that, that actually is also part of the efficiency equation in the sense that you can address um, these types of um, issues that are demanded by um, um, stakeholders and especially non-market stakeholders. You can do this in an, you know, in an efficient way, or you can so you can spend money on this and get the outcomes that you desire. Legitimacy is ultimately also a good that you can somehow purchase uh, if you do things right. Think, for example, about the new literature on corporate diplomacy, which ultimately is you know an investment in this type of uh, behavior that then. Um, hopefully will lead to some outcomes in terms of value creation. So, so I think that, um, you know, we, we have to extend the, um, the concept of efficiency uh, as management and business scholars, not as economists, but as management and business scholars, uh, to realize that there are a number of um, rights, if you want, or goods that are withheld by important, powerful stakeholders, and that we can actually uh, will pay a price as firms uh, to actually get access to these uh, goods or to these uh, rights so that actually we can fold uh, these types of issues into the um, efficiency uh, equation. Thank you. Beautiful. I see a question from uh, Fiona Moore. Uh, or is the extent theory generalizable enough that we can fit more specific theories within it? Anyone want to address this one? What was the question again? Uh, Fiona Moore says, uh, extent uh, theory generalizable. Is extent theory generalizable enough or can we fit more specific theories within it? Sorry, within what? I didn't quite hear. Within it. Uh, Fiona, are, are Fiona you can also yeah. un unmute them. Ask yes. a question. Um, <clears throat> to clarify, uh, within the debate, it seemed to me that, uh, um, uh, that there were multiple levels, that uh, uh, you, it was an arguable proposition that the uh, existing theory um, is large enough that uh, one can uh, fit uh, more. It, it was something that occurred to me during the discussion on developing markets, you know, like uh, developing markets, maybe not part of the equation when uh, um, the theory was developed. And yet, uh, you know, can the theory be expanded to uh, deal with developing markets? So do we need to throw out the theory or is it just that uh, we need to regard it as something that uh, is general and uh, yet can be, um, you know, with um, you know, with, with specific parts added, can be uh, adapted to specific circumstances. Yeah, uh, sorry, David. Go ahead. Yeah, let let me just say that I think uh, the the introduction of notions of capabilities and uh, you know, a number of scholars uh, 
thinking hard about, uh, in like Connie Helfat, thinking hard about uh, capability augmentation and learning and growth. Th these are uh, ideas that are now well in the, well developed, not well developed, but at least very present in the uh, strategy literature. And, and I think this is an example of, of how they can be worked into, for instance, an internalization framework. So um, I, I think, yes, uh, when the theories were developed initially, it was about a world of manufacturing and, and rule of law. But, but I think there's enough new conceptual development that, uh, that we, we, we can improve upon those frameworks. But at the same time, we have to uh, recognize that uh, uh, context matters and that there need to be boundary conditions uh, and, uh, and and I think many folks have got that well in mind. Yeah, I, I think I raise this Fiona. I think I, I the way I put it was that, that because they were so different, they were actually a test of the generality of the theory. Uh, Dave is making a slightly different point that some of the basic assumptions might need to be challenged and, and, and that's a matter for, for examination. It, it strikes me, uh, it's a great question, Fiona. It, it strikes me that we may or may not, depending on your perspective, obviously, be in the midst of um, sort of a the stages of early paradigm shift. I was thinking back to the ideas of, of Cute. And of course, the Cute's idea is that we have an established paradigm and that it works very, very well and everyone's comfortable with it. And then you start seeing it's fraying on the edges. And so what happens is uh, is we, we adjust the paradigm, we shift it, we stretch it, we broaden it, and, and we do so. Uh, and then at some point, um, it, the shifting and, and, and the evolution of the paradigm comes to the point that it's time to develop a new paradigm. So so all, all these things we've been talking about, all the changes in the nation of the global economy and how value is created and, and, and captured, all those conversations are, are really about is, 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 is the current paradigm so malleable that we can include all those things? And is it in fact, therefore too malleable because there aren't any uh, constraints in the theory? Or is it time to actually start thinking about alternative theories of internalization and how they might have an impact on, on the theory of the global of the international firm? That's what this debate is about. Are we in a, uh, are we, is the paradigm secure or is it, or is it in the process of being uh, required to be uh, changed? Beautiful. Oh, uh, I if see. I may, yeah, guys, I'd like to offer a comment uh, more than a uh, question. And so uh, I'm uh, very thankful to the uh, panelists, uh, great scholars in our field. Um, and to discuss this, uh, when uh, do we need a new theory, especially of uh, international firms? Um, so uh, I'd like to take a problem-solving perspective and um, ask when we need new theory, right? Um, I see two situations where we do need a new theory, maybe a new way of thinking. Uh, the first one is when we look for an answer to a novel question. And so when new and useful concepts or mechanisms are needed in this case. And uh, the second suggestion is when we look for a better answer to existing uh, question. Um, so in this case, for example, when the accuracy of existing predictions needs to be improved. And so the four scholars have talked about uh, 
something old and something new in this regard uh, with respect to the international uh, 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 the, the multinational enterprises and international business in general. And so I would like to ask what assumptions and mechanisms uh, of a theory face challenges to such an extent that we need to think uh, uh, about uh, new theories. And I'm glad that they, uh, you know, David J. Uh, and uh, Ellen have talked about some of the new things, the increasing importance of uncertainty, uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, the increasing power of the state, uh, which is, I think, which needs to be empirically validated. And so uh, when we look at all those things, do they challenge the assumptions and mechanisms of the existing theories? In what uh, aspect, to what extent? Um, so it's just some thoughts. Thank you. And very reasonable thoughts. <laughs> well, perhaps I can just um, give a very kind of partial answer, but I think that when we look at um, new empirical phenomena, and you think about the last 30 years, about the rise of uh, open innovation, and then also this somewhat elusive concept of you know, the broader ecosystem uh, that is you know, created around the platform. I think that, um, um, of course, these concepts did not exist. These phenomena did not exist the way we observe them now. But I think that um, it is important to still look at what uh, prevailing theory suggests. And prevailing theory, of course, suggests that um, when you talk about open innovation and ecosystem, you talk about uh, knowledge, you talk about an intermediate output that needs to be protected. So you need to talk about safeguards. And when you look actually at some good literature on how ecosystems uh, are managed, you realize that actually in most cases, there is a lead firm. There is a lead firm that um, has particular decision rules, that has protocols in, in place. Um, very often, these are upheld not with employees or through formal contracting, but through um, informal contracts. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we also see that the lead firm uh, is the powerful actor that can also decide to exclude some of these ecosystem or open innovation participants uh, from the process. So the, so the point being that we have these uh, new phenomena, which especially international business are becoming uh, more and more prevailing. But then at the same time, we realize that the old concepts of, hey, we have to safeguard uh, knowledge uh, and, and then how we do that, you know, that, that, that this is in fact an old question. Also the tools there to safeguard may be newer tools that did not exist 30 years ago, but ultimately the reflex uh, that managers have and the reflex that we should have as scholars in terms of what matters there, um, that remains the same. So, so I think that, um, um, the problem that I see again uh, with many manuscripts being submitted to GIPS 
is that um, especially junior scholars just pay some lip service to some you know past theory it's almost like yeah we have to get through this in the literature review and then you know we move on to these new concepts so we say that these old things are uh, imperfect do not answer the questions of today and then we move on but what i often see is that actually uh, this is done too quickly so old ideas supposedly old ideas are dismissed uh, too rapidly and that is a pity because that then leads to this um, uh, this creation of all these new uh, user-friendly and elegant concepts but that ultimately are very imprecise and ultimately don't contribute much uh, intellectual value thank you I'd like to go a bit further than Alan and suggest that one of the places we should look is at past theories. I mean, David made a very good point about Vernon's approach. I mean, when we're looking at the power of multinationals, what about Heimer's approach? I mean, there are lots of really excellent concepts and theories that, that we, we talked about the fracture in the world economy. What about the globalization that was ruined by the First World War. What about all the people who were saying trade will prevent a war because we're all so interrelated, a point Jay made. And these things have been said before. And I think one of the things we really have to do is encourage people to look at historical writing on multinationals and, and the history of the theories in multinationals, because there's a lot of great value there that's often missed. Okay, uh, perfect. Uh, there are four comments or questions. Can, can I? Can you hear me? Oh, I got a lawnmower in right outside. Can you still hear me? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. We can hear the lawnmower. I know it's very annoying. It's, it's like a guarantee. You, the time they always show up is when you don't want them to. Um, I want. I wanted to respond a little bit and comment on uh, and, and agree with Alan because because actually we agree on a lot of things. Um, um, I, I, I think, I can't speak, uh, I certainly don't have the experience uh, that he has at gyms, but I did have the experience at AMR and also have been in SMJ. But I think the, the, the problem uh, in, our, in our fields right now is not just that we are trying to develop too many theories or we're not looking at old, old theories and understanding their implications, all those things are true. I think the problem is that most of our work is fundamentally atheoretical. That is, um, find a data set, analyze a data set, pick independent variable, dependent variable, draw some loose linkage to some conceptual framework. But basically, it's a demonstration of our econometric sophistication rather than uh, actually contributing to the accumulation of theory-based knowledge in, in, in the field. So I think it's a bigger problem than just Although the problems you described are true, I think what's the bigger problem. Uh, I would like to ask uh, first Steve Tolman. Uh, he has a comment and a question. Then Faisal Altalhi and Michael Leibline and Ursula Ott in that order, please. Uh, Steve Tolman. Okay. Um, I will say that what I wrote was kind of a comment in the chat section. So let me see if I can figure out how to express it in terms of a question. Um, what I suggested, and this I think picks up on what most of you all had to say is that um, the reference seems to go back to the OLI model, although I know um, Peter's argued that there's some um, redundancies in that. But uh, my suggestion was basically said, 
maybe one of the issues is not that the inherent theoretical structure is wrong, but that because it was stated when it was stated that it's, it, it becomes very narrow. Uh, ownership and location, which meant in that time country and internalization, which at that time meant markets versus hierarchies. And so I suggested that maybe we should be looking at something along the lines of capabilities or um, access to capabilities, uh, context instead of just place, but the bigger picture of context and um, organization or organizational control for internalization. So essentially the structure of the theory that says, you know, what makes us unique? Um, where are we doing these things? And how are we organizing stays in place, but, but we stated in a more generalized fashion than what was uh, kind of available back in the 1970s. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll pose that as, as a suggestion and ask if anyone has any uh, thoughts about that. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's too narrow because it's been accused of being too wide and all things to all people. So it's quite nice if you criticise from both points of view. But I agree, basically, when it was developed, nation, location meant nation. And now with GPS and everything, we can be far more specific. But that is an example, I think, of how the world has changed and techniques have changed. But basic principles haven't. Yes, and, and let me come back to this tripartite scheme uh, from Eleanor Ostrom of frameworks, theories, and models. Uh, I think OLI is, is a framework, and frameworks, um, you would expect to be more general, that they, they, they don't need to change as much, and, and they don't necessarily need to be predictive. A model, a theory needs to be predictive. A model needs to be predictive, but a framework doesn't. A framework is something that helps organize your thinking, tells you what's important, what's not. Uh, so uh, as we careen around all of these different ideas, and let's be a bit more disciplined uh, about what is a framework and what's a good framework, what's a theory and what's a good theory and what's a model. I mean, models can always exist and they are tools, things you can pull out when you see the need for them. Uh, and if they're not necessary, they're going to sit on the shelf until maybe circumstances change. But circumstances have changed in a very big way. And this, uh, you know, we mentioned Heimer, uh, we, we should also mention Charlie Kindleberger. Uh, and Charlie Kindleberger made early contributions to the theory of the multinational enterprise, but he was an economic historian. And I'll pick up on Peter Buckley, uh, I think, who remarked that, look, we should be paying more attention to history. And Kindleberger used the term climateric. When, whenever you know, historians use this phrase that when things really change in a significant way, you've got to rethink uh, what's relevant. Uh, and Jay used the term paradigm shift. The world is in a big paradigm shift right now. There's just absolutely no question about it. Um, and, uh, and we've got to take that into account. It's also, I think, the state of theory has developed in the, the, and, and, and our, our, uh, our tools in strategic management, I think, have raced ahead uh, in some ways, uh, ahead of uh, tools in economics mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps tools in international business. And so we've had some development in the social sciences that we need to bleed into this. So, so it's not just a matter of... Um, 
you know, going back in history and using the tools from the past, uh, certainly insights from the past, but I, I do think there have been some new conceptual developments also that, that allow us to at least have a good chance of addressing uh, the new world that we're entering into, even if it's a very uncomfortable world. Thank you. Uh, Faisal, you had your hand up. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Elgaz, for organizing this, and thank you for all the panelists. Uh, my question is uh, regarding to the stakeholders. Uh, we saw, like in recent years, a lot of involvement from different type of stakeholders. We're talking about, I mean, government, institution, and sometimes employees in different countries. So my question, uh, how these type of different stakeholders influence the international firms, especially in terms of affecting their performance, efficiency, and also like their decision? Are they, are they affecting, uh, like are they uh, critically influenced the international firm that we should uh, count them in the theory, in the, new like in the new international theory, or they are just like kind of context, we should address them like that? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If I may perhaps uh, have a first go at this, I think it's a very important uh, question. And I think it is very clear that um, from also what uh, some of the colleagues have said here, that non-market capabilities are becoming increasingly important. And so I think that when we think uh, about the growth expansion of the international firms. Also, we look at phenomena like divestment, uh, for example. I think we have to think carefully about non-market capabilities and try to measure these, just like we uh, measure uh, the normal uh, capabilities uh, to be used uh, in market transactions. So this is becoming increasingly important. So that's number one. Number two, um, I think that in the past, um, when we were thinking about distance, you know, kind of we had, um, and, and the problems, of course, posed by distance, we had uh, relatively, you know, rudimentary uh, data at our disposal. But since the, uh, the CAGE uh, framework of uh, Pankaj Jemawat, and I think that was a paper from, I may be wrong, 1991, I guess. Um, I may be wrong, perhaps 2001, but anyway. Um, so since uh, Jemawat's uh, uh, distance uh, framework, where he basically really unbundles uh, distance, I think that um, we have become much better in terms of um, thinking about, number one, can we endogenize some of these elements of distance? Uh, for example, if you're an American firm and you think about um, exporting to uh, Taiwan, well, perhaps uh, you should have uh, international diversity on your top management team, on your board. Perhaps you should have people from Taiwan uh, in those uh, capacities. So to some extent, uh, distance can be endogenized. Uh, and on the other hand, of course, precisely by looking at these various components of distance and the complexities associated with these, I think we now have a much richer um, perspective on this um, as compared to 20 or 30 years ago. We've had many papers in GIPS, including some editorials on uh, how, you know, uh, what distance uh, metrics are the best to use in our uh, research in particular circumstances. Um, I think that is also important that actually 
um, how distance will affect particular firms in particular industries will be very situational. So in other words, we can't just use a broad index like a Hofstede or Globe index and then just hope that, yeah, so this will explain something. We have to think very carefully about every component of distance and why we think that in this particular circumstance, that component of distance is going to have an impact uh, on a particular uh, you know, location choice or a particular uh, type of expansion decision. So, so I think that your, um, your question is, um, is kind of an excellent one. Uh, and I do think that uh, the existing theory allows to accommodate this, but we have to uh, be creative, uh, especially as I mentioned in terms of these non-market capabilities and then these uh, distance components. Thank you. If I, could, if I could add to that, in terms of some recent paper I've got in Global Strategy Journal, I've used a borrowing from political science. It was suggested we should borrow from other social sciences. And this is the governance triangle. And this looks at the, the firm as being bounded by markets, by governments, and by civil society. And I think civil society is possibly the set of influences that we have underestimated. So I think you know that would not be a theory. I think that would be a framework, but I think it's one well worth looking at for the type of question you just asked. It's originally from political science. Abbott and Snidal are the authors. Can I make the observation about stakeholders in particular? Um, my own experience and um, suggests that international business firms have uh, been engaging stakeholders besides shareholders for decades um, and that um, and we know that because for example they've been treating some employees as original claimants by paying them part of their compensation in the form of equity or uh, options on equity on firm which makes them, makes them residual treats them like residual claimants same with some suppliers some customers etc the, the only the only people that have not really embraced the idea that there are multiple stakeholders relevant in making business decisions are some of our finance colleagues who still find it convenient to assume that the only residual claimant is a shareholder because that makes it possible for them to, frankly, to estimate the present value of a, because they need a discount rate and this less than calculated discount rate. So I, I think um, that said, uh, I am not talking about the stakeholder uh, approach that is perhaps exemplified in the recent statement now a couple of years ago by members of um, Business Roundtable that said uh, they're no longer going to try to maximize uh, shareholder returns, but they're going to try to address the interests of all their stakeholders. That's an absolutely meaningless statement. Uh, because the only way, I mean, really, without content, that's probably almost entirely political, but set that aside. Um, the only way that, that a firm could address the interests of all of its stakeholders is if the interests of those stakeholders happen to be highly correlated or at least fit with each other. And that seems extremely unlikely. That, that sort of Pollyanna kind of, can't we all just get a long model of stakeholders just seems really, really silly to be framed. So the, the, the first task is you really start thinking much carefully, more systematically about including stakeholders is to ask which stakeholders do you want to introduce visual, visual claimants? 
that is stakeholders who are part of the profit generating process and which stakeholders you want to treat as fixed claimants, the people who don't have that claim on a sort of office. Um, that doesn't solve all the problems, but that's got to be the first step as we take a more serious look at stakeholder uh, ideas and apply to international companies. Thank you. For the sake of time, I'll just take one more question. Uh, last question from Michael Liveline. Uh, Michael, are you here? No pressure, Michael. No don't, pressure. Put the, don't put that pressure on me, Elgaz. You <laughs> should have the last question. It'll be, it'll be better. Uh, so, so thank you all. This has been uh, 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 fantastic for me. Um, I, I, I think of, I tend to think in disciplines and fields. And so, I, if if you're willing, so the question uh, highlighted um, some things I took away from this discussion about the different the uh, the. Ostrom point, uh, the different assumptions about the changing world, all that was wonderful for me, thank you. The question I would ask, because I think about disciplines and fields, is do you, does the group see it, uh, to have a perspective on the distinction between strategic management as a field and international strategy or international business as a field? And if we see, you know, do you see, if we see those things as distinct or converging or diverging, um, What's the source of distinction? Can we tie it to assumptions, frameworks, theories, and models? Uh, and if there is no distinction, you know, should we be merging the fields? So I, I don't know that anybody can answer that, but- Yeah, if, well, if there was a, I'll give my point of yeah, view. Yeah, a I, shot, I, yeah. <laughs> I've always, I've never considered them distinct. Uh, th there may be reasons for specialization on the scholarly side, but, but, but clearly, uh, strategy for even a small firm of six people is likely to be international if it's not uh, impacted uh, in its domestic market by international forces. It may well actually have uh, outsourcing arrangements. It, it may have developers located overseas, goodness knows what. So I think it's a false distinction in terms of the problem set. Uh, is it a useful way of specializing in terms of understanding knowledge? Maybe, but not in terms of the problem set. I, 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 I can't agree more. Um, I do think that there's special data problems, special measurement problems that, 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 that are in an international research context, but at conceptual level, uh, all firms are operating, all firms, even the smallest firms are operating in a global uh, context currently. And so uh, I, I agree with conceptually. Yes, yeah, I, I agree as well. I think I think the one point is, is, is just been made is do you privilege international differences in certain circumstances? And I would argue that cultural differences are very, very important. And uh, I, I'm sure as strategy people pay attention to those, but it's been a particular contribution of international business people to look at cultural differences. And, and so uh, there may be a case for, for some specialization, but definitely the, the points that have been made, it's a, it's a holistic approach really. Yeah, so um, if I may add to that, um, you know, at GIPS over the past six years, what I've seen is that um, even when you have um, relatively narrow functional papers that have to do with marketing, for example, and, and many papers in finance, they actually typically have a strategy take 
you know, it's typically not uh, your what you could call mainstream finance, but it's typically ultimately about governance, about the portability of certain practices in finance and so on. So I certainly see in the um, in the journal, I certainly see that um, there is a move towards, in fact, most papers having directly or indirectly a very strong strategy angle and input from the strategic management field. But this brings me to my second and last point, and that is that um, we are often advised as international business scholars to take on board um, ideas from other uh, fields. And of course, to start with the mainstream strategy field. And I think that um, we are typically happy to do that. I think that there are many IB scholars who indeed read the, the strategic management journal, the global strategy journal, etc. Um, but I don't necessarily see this as kind of a two-way process. I think that there are still many strategy scholars who basically do their own uh, domestic stuff, uh, you know, and just, uh, and even when they, you know, look at their database, it's like, these are US companies, these are UK companies, we're going to look at some, you know, generic phenomenon that may have to do with innovation or with, you know, what have you, but uh, so, so there is some asymmetry there. And then that's okay. So I'm basically not, um, you know, I, I don't like to be prescriptive, but I just think that actually strategy scholars in general uh, could benefit from reading more uh, work that is being done in the international business sphere. Thank you. Thank you, Alain. Uh, this is all the time we have actually we're, uh, over our time. This was an amazing debate. Thank you so much for your time, effort, thoughts, and uh, these comments, these feedback. I want to thank Ederberry, uh, Louis Mars, and Gwendolyn Lee, obviously, for their continued support, uh, AOM, uh, SDR, for their help throughout the process. Uh, I'll send a follow-up email on the uh, announcement thingy uh, with the link for the video recording. And uh, thank you, and see you in Seattle. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Ilkas, for your excellent job moderating uh, a very, very interesting debate.